Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Zenat Jiwa. Zenat is the CEO of the Asian People's Disability Alliance, a charity based in Harlesden, Brent, London, which provides services to meet the needs of disabled people and carers in the Asian community. Zenat, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you, it's lovely to be here with you. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Zenat. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to firstly establish your take on leadership. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and exploring that, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your view? For me and um, our organisation, so leadership is about uh, focus, dedication, um, being supportive and um, steering, steering uh, the workforce, the staff, the uh, people, the volunteers, the the organisation in general into the way and keeping it um, focused on its aims and objectives as much as possible. And some people would say that leaders um, are people who should be able to empower and inspire others of course to really sort of take on leadership for themselves be independent and express themselves Um, if we think about that uh, for a moment uh, Zenat are there any people out there that have maybe inspired you um, throughout your career um, and in your work as you've sort of moved through into the Asian People's Disability Alliance, you've met with various uh, different people. And is there anybody that's perhaps inspired you in your day-to-day experience or is there anybody that you've looked up to? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's several amazing figures that have, from the past and, and even the present today that you can see have um, such um, good, supportive and inspirational um, um, minds and and are able to to support help people in, in many different ways in, in their position. I think that's, that's the most important thing for me is this the person, whoever they are in, in the world, is an inspirational leader, is one that can help others in their work, and, and that's really important. So for, for me, you know, Nelson Mandela um, was one of the most amazing, amazing um, individuals. And also, you know, people like Mother Teresa, that in, in a quiet, um, humble manner was able to to change many things for people and um, change lives for the better. Some fantastic examples of people that you've mentioned there, as you know, for sure. Um, Nelson Mandela himself actually once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And um, that actually is a very good piece of advice for somebody looking to begin a business or begin an organisation, because the people that you surround yourself with is incredibly important. You have to have, of course, a coherent team of people that you uh, trust. And also... They have to be, um, of course, um, have qualities that complement you as well. And you can, of course, therefore delegate certain things uh, to them. And you've got to not be willing to trust those people. So that's incredibly important as a message to really take on board, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think I think trust and, and um, um, a level of, of um, familiar 
mindsets, I think, um, are also helpful, as well as those that can challenge. Sometimes we have perceptions where where we do need some challenging and need to think of things in a different way. And I guess the um, current situation, I think, is, is one of those mm. times where we do need individuals that can think things differently to be able to adapt to the, the situation at hand. Oh, certainly. And um, there have been some incredible stories, hasn't there, of people who have gone above and beyond during this period of adversity to just keep things ticking over and keep vital services being provided. Um, when it comes to the COVID-19 situation, uh, Zena, how has it been for yourselves at the Asian People's Disability Alliance adapting to meet the challenges that the outbreak has brought about? Because I can imagine that for yourselves, um, it's been a bit of a difficult time as well. It has. It, it, it's been difficult and rewarding and challenging um, all, all at the same time. So we, we deliver different levels of support um, as an organisation. As a DDPO, so we are made up of deaf and disabled people ourselves. Um, and so, you know, it comes with experiences of, of challenges every day that, you know, people with disabilities have to bear. And so this has been quite challenging um, in itself in terms of, of the different uh, you know, requirements and measurements that we have to implement to to safely support people um, that we have been doing for many years. So um, in terms of our home care provision, we, we've been continuing to carry on and our home care staff are absolute um, angels that have been, you know, carrying on supporting people in their homes that need that care. Um, and we've, you know, we've We've been working well with the local authorities and um, hats off to them because they've been supporting us to be able to get the, the PPE, to, to get the, the levels of service that we need to get out to the community members. Um, sadly, our daycare provision did close and we, we took that decision um, because obviously we need to, to make sure that the, the situation was safe for both our, our staff and our clients. So that, that's been quite hard for both the clients and the staff in terms of um, there was a, there's a you know situation here where people have friendships and and it's uh, as I always say um, our daycare provision is is a place like you know I don't know if you've seen the program Cheers where someone where somebody knows your name um, and and we love having that 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 um, atmosphere where people know each other come and they enjoy being part of of of, of a, a community um, and that sadly has has been missed. Uh, greatly by both clients and staff um, we weren't able to, to deliver that and, and we're working with the local authority now to see how we can safely um, put the changes in place to be able to deliver some level of service back for those that are really um, isolated at home to feeling the effects mentally and physically of of the lockdown measures so um yeah, it's 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 been a difficult, challenging time, but rewarding because of the the little wins that we've had. We've we've been engaging remotely. We've had um, telephone, you know, telephone befriending sessions. We we try to adapt our services to to be able to do some outreach to those that that need it the most. And I think you're absolutely right um, in what you said there, Zinad, about the importance of that sort of mental health and well-being um, as well. That's really come to the fore, hasn't it, with that sort of social isolation element of the uh, the lockdown period. Just sort of how important do you view mental health in leadership of an organisation, both in terms of not just looking after your own, but also that of those around you? It's, it's absolutely important. I think, I mean, mental health has been underestimated for for many, many years, I think, and we, we as an organisation have been, you know, raising the the subject, um, especially within our communities, um, but also within the wide circles to say that 
you know, that socialization um, is not just a physical thing, it's a mental thing and it's, it's, it, it affects you both and, and, and I think one affects the other. So where somebody is happy and is, is feeling happy, I think it, it helps their physical health too quite, quite a lot. Um, and we see, you know, we have seen some decline in, in some people's condition as a result of, of the lockdown. Um, and we do have our own sad stories to, to tell of, of, of individuals. So, um, but, you know, it, it's really important that we try to do our best as an organisation to try and lift people up and keep that, um, the conversations going and, and keep that uh, momentum of, of that, the hope. And that, that's, I think, you know, a lot of people are holding on to that hope of coming back to um, a different way of life, but a little bit of normality. And I think that people are, are yearning for that. I would agree with that. I think uh, people are sort of desperate for a return to some kind of uh, normal. And I think that's certainly being seen in certain behaviours as lockdown restrictions are being lifted um, at this uh, particular point in time. Um, just um, reflecting on sort of government leadership throughout the uh, the pandemic uh, thus far, um, in your view, as you know, anyway, um, do you think that sort of guidelines that you've received to continue to provide your services in a safe way have been sort of clear enough? Um, throughout this because there's been a great deal of debate about clarity transparency over those um, sort of regulations and I think those are two very important elements of leadership in themselves having to be clear transparent and honest so how do you feel about all of that? Um, yeah there hasn't I mean we, we are in a little bit of a um, so the daycare provision doesn't fall under any such guidance as such so we've had to you know, um, use what we have had as experience, a 30 years experience of delivering safe, you know, quality care. Um, and we've used that to, to make our decisions and adapt our, our provisions to enable safe support of the community, um, ourselves. So, and, and I, and I appreciate it's very difficult to think of every, um, section of society because it's so complex and, 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 and diverse. Um, for legislators and people who've put put the provision, you know, in, in such a short space of time with the pandem- pandemic taking over so quickly, so fast, you know, um, and it, it it's something probably that many people um, have never come across in in, in quite in, in a couple of generations, I guess. So um, we we appreciated that we weren't going to fit in to any sort of guidelines. As such, so we we've used and we've used our experiences and used what guidelines there were um, to to hopefully safely put back some measures in place to, to support people. Um, and um, yeah, I think it, it's difficult to because there's not specific guidelines for for our provision and for the charity sector. And we've we've um, we've used what we can and we've used our experiences. And I think that's the best thing about the voluntary sector and and charities is that we are resilient. And we, we adapt and we are innovative. And I think that's what's always been our unique selling point. And I think that's what we will always keep us above water is that we're able to adapt and we adapt to the needs of the people. And that's the most important because you can write guidance and legislation, but if it doesn't meet the needs of the people, um, you know, and that, that's where we as a charity have, have done our best to, to use our, our common sense, our experiences, um, and listening to what our our service users and our, our communities need to be able to adapt ourselves accordingly. 
Exactly right. Adaptability and flexibility is so, so important, um, especially at a time such as this. And it's forced the hand of a lot of people to uh, to be able to do that. And some have come away from this quite difficult and quite sensitive time, actually learning quite a lot from the uh, the experience. Um, thinking about um, how it's been so far managing this uh, crisis, Sina, what do you think is on the horizon over the next 12 months as we adapt to the new normal for yourself, for the Asian People's Disability Alliance? And what do you really hope to achieve as we sort of move into the long term? Yeah, so the next 12 months are going to be, I think, um, I guess uh, um, uncharted waters as such for us um, because there's obviously there's, there's health guidance, there's, there's uh, social, sorry, uh, so the society's uh, requirements and all of that balance and then obviously the individuals that we're working with are, are um, often classed as clinically vulnerable. So it, it's a fine balance for us. And I've also got a staff workforce that I need to balance their needs. Um, so it's going to be quite a delicate 12 months, I think, for us. Um, and, and, but the most, you know, the most important part is that, is that we adapt to the best that meets the needs of our, our communities and our, uh, the people that we support. So Asian disabled people, their carers and their families, um, they're at the forefront of our of any of our sort of uh, changes to service provision. Um, and I think one thing we wanted to bear in mind is something that we that's often forgotten about. I think in all of this, that is is the actual um, needs of and the choices of disabled people. I think often the choices of disabled people haven't been at the forefront, and and they've somewhat been dictated to which is I guess right in terms of of looking at the first and foremost preservation of life comes first and that that now I think we've we, we we've got possibly past majority of that stage and now it's the need about adapting services but I think the, the, the voice of the disabled person has to be heard when you know services are are recommissioned and and uh, adapted with the new um, life as we know it uh, and that's what's really important for us and we will all continue to be advocating for the voice of disabled people and, with, and adapting our services to meet those needs as well. Sounds like there's plenty on the uh, horizon to really get your teeth into during this period Zenat, for sure and yeah. you know I think it would actually be fantastic given how um, informative it's been having you join us on the programme today to catch up in future and have you back on the air with us just to see how things are getting on in a few months' time and hopefully some more sort of normality is uh, resumed uh, with regards to that sort of daily daycare provision as well by that point. Yeah, absolutely. It would be lovely, yes. It would be lovely to see if if, um, it's all good news, hopefully. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's still a lot of variables in all of this. We don't know, of course, whether there will be a second spike in cases um, as of yet. So there are plenty of time. There's plenty of time for things to change one way or the other. And let's certainly hope it's going to be uh, for the better and that that recovery is going to continue. Um, Zina, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you join us on uh, today's uh, programme. And I thank you once again for taking the time to join us. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're not quite clear out of the woods with this one yet and let's just hope and keep our fingers crossed that everything's going to be okay yeah brilliant thank you so much for having us and i really appreciate uh, you taking the time 
That was Zina Jiwa speaking, CEO of the Asian People's Disability Alliance in Harlesden. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. In fact, he rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation during his political career, did Lord Blunkett kit, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, despite being blind from birth. He was then elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up just now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere, 
across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now it has been said by certain parties um, and uh, i'd like to garner your Uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.